Comic books aren't for kids anymore. We've heard the refrain for years in mainstream media, but 30 seconds at the end of a newscast or two paragraphs in a magazine can't provide the behind-the-scenes information or entertainment like one episode of Word Balloon. Welcome to Word Balloon, the comic book conversation show. This is John Suntress. Word Balloon is a one-on-one interview program featuring pop culture conversations with storytellers. People who don't read today's comic books may think the medium is still being written for nine-year-olds, but as film, television, and video game producers can tell you, they couldn't be more wrong. These writers and artists are just as entertaining talking about their process as they are producing the stories they make. Listen to a sample episode and discover why Word Balloon leads the way in pop culture entertainment coverage. Welcome to Episode 11 of the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown Podcast the podcast where we discuss and examine the 75 greatest Marvel stories as chosen by Marvel readers and published by Marvel Comics itself. The countdown continues every Wednesday until June 1st, 2016. And joining us once again, and not for the last time, is Mr. Lex Pendragon from Horizon Labs Facebook and Twitter groups. Welcome back, Lex. Thanks for having me back yet again. Oh yeah, of course, we're going to have you back. And this time we're looking at Marvel Superheroes Secret Wars issues 1 through 12. So this is the miniseries that was published one issue a month every month through 1984. This is not the Jonathan Hickman series that ran through 2015, which isn't even complete as of the time of this recording, and had not even started at the time of voting. That was in Marvel's 76th year. We're just focusing on years 1 through 75. Although clearly the inspiration for the later one. Yeah, I haven't read an issue yet because of where I am in my own reading stacks and still haven't finished Hickman's Avengers. But I have been spoiled on who the villain is. So that'll come up in our plot synopsis here. But yeah, this is definitely a much stronger tie than, say, Secret War, singular, by Brian Michael Bendis and Gabriel Delato. Mm-hmm. But this is the one that was written by Jim Shooter. Ten out of the 12 issues were penciled by Michael Zeck. The two other ones were filled in by Bob Layton. They were all inked by John Beatty, colored by Christy, a.k.a. Max Scheel or Nell Yomtov, lettered by Joe Rosen, and edited by the legendary Tom DeFalco. Cover dates range from May 1984 to April 1985, and they were actually released ranging from January 24th, 1984 to December 24th, 1984. So it ended on Christmas Day. And as already mentioned, this came out at number 11 in the countdown. All right, so technical details out of the way. This is on here probably for a few reasons. This is one that's significant, both in terms of continuity and in terms of the impact on the industry. This is Marvel's second attempt at a line-wide crossover, and it was their big event stories. They previously had the Contest of Champions, which was a neat little three-issue miniseries with no tie-ins. It stood completely alone. Marvel Super Heroes Secret Wars was a little bit different. The company that had the toy license to sell Marvel toys came to Marvel and said, hey, you know, we've been making good money off the toys but your characters are keeping the same costumes they've always kept, so it's hard to resell the same characters. We'd like some new costumes for them. Now, we'd like to have it tie in to a comic series, because at this point, He-Man had proven the power of a franchise with toys with a TV tie-in. The He-Man and Masters of the Universe people were raking in money hand over fist. The next year, G.I. Joe and Transformers did it, and that was 1984, and Marvel was involved in the G.I. Joe tie-in comics. They were already working with Hasbro on the Transformers tie-ins. And they were seeing some of that. They were very open to doing licensed properties at that time, as opposed to today, where they basically do Star Wars, because Disney owns that too. For a while there, they were not doing licensed properties of any kind. And so the toy company came forward and said, okay, we want 
these characters with new costumes so we could sell new toys for the same characters. We want all your major stars. And we have found through our testing that the two words that test really, really well with the young audiences and the target that we want to be buying these toys are the words secret and wars. So the order came down from Marvel's ownership to editorial saying, okay, write something called Secret Wars that features all of our characters with new costumes. And editor-in-chief Jim Shooter was the one that stepped forward and took on the writing duties himself because he had the idea for the Beyonder that he just loved and came up with a story where we had actual tie-ins and there was something in all the comics for all the characters involved that pointed readers towards the Secret Wars series. So even though the Secret Wars series lasted 12 months, it came out late January 1984. All of the other titles that Marvel's putting out that were involved, such as your Spider-Mans, your Avengers, your Fantastic Four, your X-Men, they all featured a sequence usually at the end of that January 1984 issue, or the one released in January, not the one cover dated January, where the characters felt compelled to go to Central Park and step inside this giant machine and vanish. In the issues that came out in February, all of those main characters were missing from their books. So Sue Storm was the only member of the Fantastic Four left. You know, Spider-Man's supporting cast dealt with the fact that both Spider-Man and Peter Parker had disappeared. You know, the X-Men were dealing with the loss of some of their teammates. These guys just up and vanished, and once they were all collected, so it was the machine that, that they were in. Now, the month that issue three came out, that machine reappeared in Central Park, and these characters came back, and the upcoming status quo changes that were a direct result of Secret Wars were revealed. So, Spider-Man came out of this machine in the alien black costume that he did not yet have in the miniseries. The Hulk came out with a broken leg. When the Fantastic Four came back out, She-Hulk was a member of the Fantastic Four rather than the Avengers, and the Thing had chosen to stay behind. So there was this major shakeup in the titles that helped drive people to buying the Marvel Superheroes Secret Wars 12-issue series to find out what's going on. There's some interesting timings, especially with Spider-Man's black costume, because the initial fan reaction to that of the fans that chose to write in was very, very negative. So editorial is coming in saying, get rid of the black costume as soon as humanly possible. <laughs> and the writers are going, you haven't even introduced it yet. <laughs> so they came up with the plan where it was this alien symbiote, not just this, you know, material that was leeching off him and draining him. And they could play it out so that the month he got the costume in Secret Wars was the month he got rid of it in the main titles. And then by then it was super popular and they had to find a way to bring it back. So he got a cloth version and down the road it became Venom. But... A lot of this was happening, and this was really Marvel's first attempt at a crossover event. The closest thing that they'd had to crossovers prior to this were things like the Avengers Defenders War. It was probably the, the predecessor that's most similar that went bouncing back and forth between titles. And there were others where, you know, a story that started in Daredevil skipped over to Iron Man and went back to Daredevil, but it was just that one issue. Or, you know, a story that started in one title would ended the other, but it was just two issues often with cancellations, like the cliffhanger at the end of Nova 25 gets resolved in Fantastic Four, things like this. But Secret Wars was the first time that they planned to do this from the start. So a lot of these these status quo changes, like the thing leaving the Fantastic Four, wouldn't come out in the Secret Wars story itself until the end of issue 12. So it wasn't you know, a lot of editorial coordination on the scale of, say, Crisis and Infinite Earths over at DC at roughly the same time. Right? That would have been much greater scale because of the amount of history they were rewriting. But it was Marvel's first attempt at a big job like that. And it was successful enough that now the summer event with the crossover issues and the tie-ins seems to be a staple of the business model. I've even seen them poke fun at that in one of the other issues where I believe it was a Marvel Zombies issue 
where all the heroes that have left were fighting the zombies. And he's like, what's going on? He's like, well, come on. I know we do this every couple of months. We all get together and fight some major big bad. But seriously, how are we getting out of this one? Yeah, it is something, as we said, it's become a staple of the industry. But this is where it started. And I know you can nitpick where it actually started. Crisis on Infinite Earths was conceived first. But as we said, that was a much bigger editorial job. Secret Wars was conceived second, but published first. So whichever one you want to call first, you can call either of those stories first. But this was certainly Marvel's first, even if it wasn't the industry's first. And it did well enough that, like you said, they've been continuing to do it. We also saw plenty of sequels to this particular arc, too, where we had even just the direct one, Secret Wars 2. Yeah, we had Secret Wars 2 and a couple of different versions of Secret Wars 3. Because they kept forgetting they did it. Yep, because all the versions of Secret Wars 3 were just that forgettable. Yep. And now they just decide to drop the numbering, and now we have just Secret Wars again. Mm -hmm. That we do. But with that, we should get into the plot synopsis of this. We talked about how the heroes got whisked away. The reason and entity behind it is the Beyonder. He apparently wants to study good and evil. So he's looked at the minds and the motivations of all the various characters in the Marvel Universe and decided, this group is the good guys, this group is the bad guys, let's bring them out into a battle world that I've created, have them fight each other, and then, end of the day, the winner tells me whether good or evil is the better perspective. Because as the Beyonder from the place out beyond, he doesn't understand that, because there is no concept of good and evil, he's the only entity there. Now, why that is depends on which Secret Wars 3 you read to get the Beyonder's origin, whether he is a cosmic cube that attains sentience, or an inhuman mutant whose power got radically amplified by the Terrigen Mists, or something else entirely. That's not a factor here. They make no attempt to explain it. He does not take a humanoid form in this story. And interestingly, when he's putting the teams together, he makes Magneto one of the good guys. Which, if you examine his motivations for how he chose who's there so that he could look at their mindset, that makes sense, because Magneto's a hero to him, as far as he knows. He's mm-hmm. trying to do right by his people, so he's trying to do right, he's trying to help people, he goes in with the good guys. Yeah, Magneto and Professor Xavier ultimately have the same goals. They just disagree pretty severely on how to go about it. Except for this miniseries. Yeah. This is one of the first times when they pulled together, and that's one of the impacts on continuity. This is where Professor X and Magneto start working together outside of flashbacks. You know, we've since had retcons that said that they were friends and compadriots when all of the, the X-Men were getting started, but this is when we saw that happen before New Mutants, and Magneto took over the school, and before those events. So we brought them together, and then once we've got them all together, the next step is they all get put onto this nice patchwork planet that's already populated with some alien civilizations we find out, and has various toy i mean bases that they can inhabit the uh the mutants the mutants seem to get sectioned off from the rest of the good guys and almost make their own third team in this story which i thought was a very interesting kind of dynamic that they drilled into it yeah that's that's a hallmark of the jim shooter era where the x-men really were segregated and ostracized and treated that way even by the other heroes yeah it was something i mean i was downright uncomfortable with the way that I think even Captain America at some point makes a comment. It's like, well, I'm not sure if we can trust the mutants. Yeah, and that's common in the Jim Shooter era. None of the heroes are racist except against mutants in the X titles. They'll have no problems with the mutants who are on the Avengers. But if the mutants are on the X-Men, ooh, I don't know. I don't know. You know, and and then almost to prove him right, the mutants decides like, well, let's go off over here and just kind of not help anybody. I'm not sure if we can trust them either, so they end up 
acting the way that, you know, the hated minority is supposed to act. Yeah. It's not a great representation of them. But you know what? It is intended to be a representation of the toys. Because that's, yeah. as we said, we see, we've got some new outfits for some of them. The Wasp has a new outfit. They introduce a few new characters because, as like said, this battle world is a patchwork planet. And one of the patches is a suburb of Denver, Colorado, which we discover a couple issues after people from it show up. So honestly, as a reader, I was confused when someone other than those original teams walked onto frame or into the panel. Because we had Doom, we had Dr. Doom creating new characters, new villains out of a couple of test subjects that just were there, I guess. He had in his back pocket, it seemed like. Yeah. We later learned that they're from that suburb of Denver, Colorado, where Spider-Woman, the Julia Carpenter, second Spider-Woman, is also from. So that's all along with Volcana and Titania. You know, the villains include Galactus, who ends up being one of the three major threats that these heroes have to face. It's really down to Galactus, Doctor Doom, and the Beyonder. Those are the, the three major points that they have to go after. Yeah, the rest of the villains pretty much just become Doctor Doom's lackeys. Yeah. Oh, very much so. And it's something that, honestly, when I first read this, before I knew the history and that it was designed as a toy ad, it felt, I thought and assumed it was an ad for the comics in the Marvel Universe. Because it feels like they've clutched together a chance to showcase their whole line. Mm-hmm. It's not as natural as some of the events later. Like In a few weeks' time, we'll talk about Civil War, which was a pretty natural outgrowth of the stories. Secret Invasion was bubbling for so long, as we've heard, that felt natural at the time it hit. There's others, even House of M is really an event that came out of the blue, but it was still natural. It's, you know, they woke up and the world was different, but by the time it's done, you understand the history that led to the world becoming different. Same with Avengers Disassembled. This didn't feel like it was a natural outgrowth of some of the characters. There's enough characters that didn't seem like the way they were written in their own books. Mm -hmm. It really did. I always thought it actually felt like a child playing with their toys because it's, hey, I've got all these spider, I've got Spider-Man and the good guys over here. Now let's have them fight these guys. Now let's have them fight these guys. Now let's take them back to their base. And I mean, it's pretty much what you expect like a seven-year-old to be sitting down doing with his action figures. Yeah. That really is it. And I mean, that probably means that largely it was the perfect story for the target market. Yeah. Because that's what they were doing. It's, hey, here's one of the really cool things you could do with all these action figures. Watch. Yeah. And the story woven between all of this, it's not horrible. No, it is. It's a little awkward. And some of the characters have to be a little bit out of character to make it work. I mean, Mm -hmm. we already talked about Captain America saying, well, I don't know if I could trust the mutants. And that's, I wouldn't see him expressing it that way. I could see him saying, I don't know if we can trust Magneto because of this individual's history, mutant or not. Right. This is the character's history. And by the end of the series, Captain America does turn around and defend the mutants. And there there was a great line in there about, I think Wolverine and him are talking. He says something to the effect of, it looks like you're starting to realize that mutants are people too. And he's like, yeah, some of my best friends are people. Yeah. And even then it was, uh, even Wolverine wasn't as blunt as mutants are people too, I think. It's one of the few cases of subtlety in this where Mormon's like, you know, I I guess you're warming up to us and realize that we can be okay. Yeah. And it's when Captain America says, yeah, some of my best friends are people. Using people instead of, you know, the the lines you'll hear people actually say where some of my best friends are black or gay or whatever minority they're trying to say they support. The use of the word people is right in line with Captain America where he's like, that's all I see is people. I don't care. So, yeah, they do get there in the end. But to me, it would have been nice if it was 
you know, maybe one of the less developed characters, maybe one of the new characters from Denver. I mean, had it been mm-hmm. Spider-Woman who had no personal history with these guys and only knew what she saw in the media, because mm-hmm. the way it's been represented, anyone who knew these characters only from the media would have serious misgivings about working with Spider-Man and the X-Men at this point in Marvel history. Right. I think that's also something that they do in context address once or twice that like Cap being out of character when he's not trusting the mutants or at one point the Hulk in this story has Bruce Banner's brain, but he starts going more traditional Hulk, angry and smashing things. And he says, he says to himself, like, why am I doing this? Why am I just, you know, falling apart? And a lot of things were kind of reset to the iconic status for each of the character. Professor X at this point in continuity could walk. He'd had his back repaired, but he shows up in a wheelchair. And the first thing he does is stand up and is like, what am I doing with this? I don't need that. And it kind of gives you the idea of, well, the people who are going to pick up this comic are probably just picked up a bunch of toys, and this is where it's coming from. This is what the public consciousness of these characters are, so we're going to start with that. Oh, yeah. Talking to others before reading this, one of the moments that stuck out in a lot of their minds was when the Hulk breaks his leg. A few issues into this, I believe it was the Molecule Man in particular, may have been doomed, but I believe it was the Molecule Man who was showing that, no, yeah, he could fight these heroes. He's trying to be a good guy. He's working with his therapist to be a good guy, which is why I was a little surprised that he showed up on the evil team, but Magneto was the good team. Owen Reese, the Molecule Man's mindset at the start of this, I would think he'd showed up on the good guys as well, because that's what he seems to be striving for. But he shows off for his new girlfriend by throwing a mountain at the heroes. And the heroes survive because the Hulk catches the mountain. And there's a moment that may initially appear to be a little out of character for Reed Richards, where he's yelling at the Hulk, but the next page it's revealed that, no, Reed is just that smart. He knows that the stronger the matter Hulk gets, the stronger he gets. So he was deliberately making the Hulk mad, so he would be strong enough to withstand the mountain and save their lives, which he does, but he broke his leg in the process. And that broken leg survives through the entire 12 issues, you know, right from issue 4 through 12. His leg Mm -hmm. is broken. And it's even broken for a few panels in the issue where he returns to Earth at the end of Civil War or Secret Wars, but that's it. He comes through with a broken leg, and now he's back on Earth. Oh, my healing factor kicked in. I'm good now. Even though he didn't actually have a defined healing factor yet. But it's, oh, yeah, yeah, that's been enough time. My leg is healed. And he just shakes off the cast and ditches the crutches and goes back about his business. Well, he did spend a lot of time on Battleworld getting into fights with, you know, supervillains. So didn't have time to heal there. (laughs) He did. And... (laughs) One of the issues that you hear about from creators who are working at Marvel during the Jim Shooter era, particularly between the two Secret Wars miniseries, is that when he was writing one of these events, every single comic in the line had to take part. These days, Marvel, if they're doing Siege, that is based largely about the fact that Asgard is just outside Oklahoma and you're writing Thor, you're going to take part because you can't tell the story of Siege without involving Thor. But a lot of these other events, you know, when Secret Invasion was going on, Uncanny X-Men didn't have to tie in. Instead, there was just the their own standalone miniseries, and they would do that. If these characters should be involved and the person writing the main title doesn't want to disrupt their story arc to do that, Marvel will respect that and just have someone else put out the miniseries that fits within the status quo of the main series to just talk about how those characters are involved. Shooter didn't give that freedom because Marvel wasn't yet doing miniseries aside from these major events. So if you're writing Spider-Man, well, by God, you're going to reflect what Shooter's doing with him in in Secret Wars. And every title had to tie in in some way, shape, or form. So that's part of it. I think part of the reason the Hulk cast off that cast so quickly when he got back is because the writer's like, okay, I'm done with this story derailment now. I'm just going to go back on track and do what I want to do again. There we go. Get things back on track. Yeah. 
So there is some of that, but yeah, in terms of the impact on the industry, as we said, this was one of the first major events. The plot synopsis, you know, to continue the plot, they're they're fighting each other. Uh, the X Men, as like said, go off on their own. Uh, few of them meet a woman whose name I don't think I can pronounce. It's Zazi or Zazi. There's a Z and an S right at the beginning together. Yeah, and then another similar ones at the end, who's not only a healer and able to repair a lot of them, including bringing the Wasp back to life after she's killed along the way. But one of the side effects of her powers seems to be that if she heals you, you fall in love with her. So Colossus pretty much forgets about Shadowcat and falls in love with this alien woman, which is something that, not in these 12 issues, but Wolverine and Nightcrawler do take him to task on that, you know, Uncanny X-Men when they get back. And unfortunately, he was the second one to do so after Johnny Storm, who'd turned around and actually hit on her. So he managed to land her. (laughs) Yeah. So Colossus was in love with her, but Johnny Storm was interested in her. She was interested in Johnny. But when it came down, he was the one that even said, yeah, there's there's no time for chippies now. The world's at stake. Yeah. And Colossus didn't care for that. <laughs> no, that, Colossus comes off as kind of a heel throughout all of that because he ends up, I think at one point later, the heroes have to uh, take a vote on if they're going to make a final stand type scenario. And Colossus balks at the idea because, well, wait a minute, I don't want to make a final stand i just fell in love with this girl yeah yeah it's not great but by the time that final stand comes this is as this is going the beyonder has promised them all whatever wishes they want if they just you know slay their enemies and the reaction of most villains is okay well let's plan and do these tactics and kill these guys and get what we want and some of the heroes are okay with that wolverine seems to be one of the okay let's get started heroes but some of the others are like well no let's figure out what this beyonder wants and find another way to get off this planet where everyone can live. Now, amongst the villains, Galactus doesn't care about the other characters involved. What he sees is Battle World, which he can feed on. I think he also starts off recognizing that Beyonder has enough, has more power than him and can end his hunger, which yeah. is the, the prize that Galactus wants. So instead of starting with Battle World, he thinks, well, forget about this whole Battle World and all of the other participants. I'm going to go after the Beyonder and get myself cured. Oh, yeah. It's actually one of the nice bits for Galactus. It's one of the Mm -hmm. few times where he's not just a straight-up evil character. Now, the most evil character in here is Doctor Doom, where he sees the power of the Beyonder, and unfortunately, Doctor Doom's greatest desire is to have that power for himself. But he does not believe the Beyonder would give that power up, because in his place, Doom wouldn't. So he puts together a plan to steal the Beyonder's power, which is largely successful. He does actually take the Beyonder's power although he recognizes his own limitations. So at this point, Claw has come back from the dead in, well, can you call it a body when he's made out of sound? His sound reconstitutes. Yeah, he's there. He's just mentally shot and fried and tends to repeat himself. You know, so if you... I think he's supposed to be an echo at that point. (laughs) Yeah, where, you know, if he ends a sentence with the word book, it'll end with book, ook, 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 or something along those lines. He's just... Totally unstable. You know, Dr. Doom says, yeah, I'm going to chop up your body and use it to make lenses. And Claw's response is, okay, let's go get started. It's not going to hurt. I made a sound. Go ahead. Ed, Ed, Ed. Yeah, he's not at all like the Claw that I'm used to Mm -hmm. in any other title. But part of that is the idea here was that when he got put back together, he wasn't put back together right. And he is the kind of comedic sidekick that appeals to the same target audience that enjoys Jar Jar Binks. Yep. Right. That's what they were aiming for once again. So. Yeah, they were all pulling together, and Doom steals the Beyonder's power. 
and they're dealing with that. But as I said, he recognized his own limitations and, you know, Claw was there and he was Doom's sidekick and Doom's assignment for him was make sure I don't fall asleep. Because if I fall asleep and my subconscious goes nuts, who knows what I'm going to do? I need to stay conscious and in control until I get used to this much power. Because he at least recognized the limitations that his unconscious and subconscious mind could do a lot with this power. And I think we see a few panels of him in a surrealist landscape where as soon as he gets the power, his every stray thought starts creating things and moving things around. And we get the distorted view of everything before he gets it under control. He's, which is nice because there's a number of comics where characters obtain immense amounts of power and just immediately know what to do with it and how to control mm-hmm. it. They may make bad choices with it. You know, just look at Jafar in Aladdin. Mm-hmm. He had the genie. He could do whatever he wanted, but he got tricked into doing stupid things. Right. Whereas Doom was, whoa, whoa, hang on. I am not used to this. I am not ready for this. And he had to refocus. He had to make himself mortal and bury the power deep within him before doing anything. Because otherwise, he just didn't know how to cope and how to survive. So I will give it credit for that. But... Doom got that power by doing what he thought would destroy the Beyonder. It turns out the Beyonder just became non-corporeal and started possessing those around Doom and managed to take his power back, at which point everyone was too distracted by the fact that, well, Galactus is right here. He failed to just force the Beyonder to give him what he wants. So now he's going to feed and gain enough power to do this. And frankly, if he does feed, then he'll win the Beyonder's challenge because he'll destroy all heroes and all villains and everything else on that planet. Everything on Battleworld. So that's when the heroes band together and put their differences aside to destroy the apparatus. Although Reed is there going, hey, guys, are we sure we want to destroy it? Because, you know, allowing Galactus to get his wish would be a good thing. Maybe we should just find a way to get out first and let him end his hunger and end the threat of Galactus once and for all. That's not quite the way it plays out. It's not, but it does give a little bit of moral ambiguity to a few of the events later. Like, are we doing the right thing? Which, for, you know, a five-year-old smash em up comic, wasn't bad. Yeah, it, it really feels like Jim Shooter was trying to add as much substance to this as his target audience would be able to accept. Mm-hmm. Especially towards the end. Yeah, and he did get a lot of that in there. At least, as we said, within the confines of the story and the toy commercial that it was originally conceived as. Mm-hmm. And then to uh, wrap up the plot, once Doom does have this incredible power... The Beyonder does manage to get back to Doom, retake the power back from him, just as uh, the villains. Dr. Doom first meets the Molecule Man, unlocks the rest of Molecule Man's power so that he ends up becoming... He gets power over all molecules. I was a little unsure how that was supposed to have played out, but he ends up being omnipotent, but less than Doom. And then once he has this power, he picks up the entire suburb of Denver and begins taking the villains, who've all decided to crash in Volcano's apartment, back to Earth, pretty much just by picking it up and flying it there. Yep. And then, when it's all said and done, and the Beyonder is defeated and satisfied, the heroes essentially go home the way they came. With the exception of Ben Grimm, who decides, I'm going to stick around here, because over the course of the uh, 12 issues, he loses his rock form, and just becomes a regular human, and then it comes back, and then it goes away, and then it comes back. And he's not quite sure why, but he decides he doesn't see anything on Earth to stick around for anyway, so he's just going to stick here and figure out what's going on and kind of search his soul for a bit. Yeah, especially since by the end of it, he does learn how to control the transformation. So he can flip Mm -hmm. between Ben Grimm and the Thing at will, which is why She-Hulk comes back as a member of the Fantastic Four. 
which in terms of the impact this has on continuity, that's one of the bigger changes because not only does that shake up the team dynamic of the Fantastic Four while John Byrne's writing it and give John Byrne another chance to write She-Hulk, which he's amazing at, but it also put Alicia Masters on a very different track, Mm -hmm. So, which was later retconned as well. So following this, when Ben Grimm did not return, Alicia ended up falling in love with the Human Torch and they got married, only to discover later that that version of Alicia had replaced the original Alicia. She was a Skrull who was there to infiltrate the Fantastic Four through the love of the Thing, only when the Thing didn't come back, she needed a plan B and went after Johnny instead. I believe they revealed that for the Fantastic Four's 35th anniversary issue. It was. It had a nice die-cut cover, and I remember it was one of the first comics I bought two of because it was during the height of the... Uh, speculators market so yeah i believe it was actually issue 350 itself 350 yeah yeah i think 300 was the actual wedding and then 350 was the reveal that it was actually elijah and that johnny had Mm -hmm. married a scroll and they went into space and got the real alicia masters back who didn't have the same feelings for johnny so no i remember that one because she'll wake up turn around to ben runs over she's like oh ben thank goodness you're here and johnny's sitting there like expecting his wife to come out of the you know cocooned hyperbolic chamber that she was trapped in is like uh wait a minute <laughs> yeah yeah so it had that impact on the fantastic four it introduced venom to the spider-man canon and it set up a new dynamic between professor xavier and magneto and started making magneto a more ambiguous villain and he's started him down that road to being the very sympathetic villain that he's become that we saw in the x-men films mm-hmm. so this has certainly had an impact on continuity and that's before we even talk about the sequels. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, when the Beyonder takes human form and Spider-Man has to teach him how to poop, then that's just a whole new thing. Yeah. Did that one make the list as well? No, Secret Wars 2 did not make the list. Can't imagine why not. Like I said, it, it does feel like a five-year-old's let's smash all of our action figures together story, especially at the beginning. But it's not a bad one of that, and they do try to work a lot into it. Yeah, it it tries to grow beyond that. And mm-hmm. succeeds in some areas. Mm-hmm. And for that inner five-year-old, it's wonderful, too. Oh, yeah. So were you a five-year-old when you first read it, or did you come across this later? This is one I came across later. I came across, um, like, as it was coming out, I came across The Secret Wars 2 when that one was going on. And I remember the idea of an omnipotent being just sounded incredible to me, and I loved that part of the storyline. The original Secret Wars, I... Not sure when I first read it. I wouldn't be surprised if it was within the last couple of years. Okay. Yeah, for me, it was similar. My first exposure to the Beyonder was actually when he showed up in New Mutants and slaughtered the team in just one of the random mutant books, because at the time I was just reading the X books. And then two issues later, I was reading it, and they were back from the dead, but not really with it. So that it confused me at the time. My first exposure to the story proper was picking up the collected edition in the early to mid-2000s mm-hmm. and reading it that way. More for the importance in Marvel continuity, because you know I'd, I'd heard that yeah it was the first major event because people tend to disregard Contest of Champions for that, and not unjustifiably so, because Contest of Champions hasn't had a lot of implications beyond that. Even though it is showing up in the new Secret Wars series by Jonathan Hickman, it gets its own tie-in with an ongoing coming following that event. But yeah, this story itself, reading it, as I said, it felt like an ad for the line, and then I looked into the history and found out, no, it's an ad for toys based on the line. Okay. I'm going beyond that. There wasn't a lot of substance. I mean, if you want to get into the deeper meanings, the messages, morals, and meanings in the section of the podcast that I've shamelessly stolen from Mission Long, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, which you should all be listening to because it is great. It 
Yeah, a lot of it is just the battle between good and evil. And and buy these toys. Yeah. As Lex said, by the time it's at the end, there's sort of that anti-racist message when even Cap comes around and they're all accepting of the mutants by the time it's all done. But that's just taking out some of the slurs that were in there mm-hmm. and moving on. It's not... The, the message is there, but it's not the point of the story. Right? The story is not a, a means to tell that message. That's just something they were able to work in. They may have been trying to do something with Colossus and Zazi with the love triangle, I guess, adding in the Human Torch or something along those lines about trying. I'm not, if they were trying to do something there, I'm not sure what they were going for, and I don't think they accomplished it. But it did seem like they focused a lot of effort on that particular subplot. Yeah, I would agree. Of all the possible subplots, that one got a lot more space on the page than the rest. I mean, even the introduction of Spider-Man's new costume is about a page. When he goes into the room where others found a machine that makes new costumes, they didn't tell him which machine it was. He took a guess and apparently picked the wrong one. Mm-hmm. So when it's all said and done, the guy with the science background recognizes that his costume can do a bunch of things the others can't. But he doesn't really have time to explore why, because Galactus is about to eat the planet they're on. So that gets tabled until a return. Mm-hmm. Although by that time, if the readers were reading Spider-Man as it came out, they already knew what right. was going on with the alien symbiote costume, because it had already been removed. Well, I, that does make a lot more sense also, because I know I knew that it was an alien symbiote reading it, because uh, anybody who didn't read it as it came out knew that, obviously. And evidently, even those who were reading it as it came out did know that. But I thought it was odd how, oh, we got this new costume here, and I was under the impression that the alien symbiote nature of the costume was an afterthought but it sounds more like they wrote it with that in mind from the get-go rather than just a hey here's a costume machine to replace everybody's torn and ruined costumes yeah it from what i get of the history the costume was just meant to be a fancy alien costume so it really Mm -hmm. was meant to be just alien technology as a wearable outfit but by the time they got to its origin fans had hated it so much that they had their out planned and that Mm -hmm. was integrated into the story so the fact that it was a living entity wasn't known when they first conceived of it and designed it, but it was known very early on in the process. And that's one of the ones that, I mean, Flash Thompson is still wearing it today after it gets fixed up. Yeah, it has been a huge piece. Without the alien costume, we don't have Venom. We don't have Anti-Venom. We don't have Carnage. We don't have other stories on this list. We don't have one of the Disney Infinity figurines I've got on the shelf in the next room. <laughs> I think we've gotten a number of other stories out of this. I'd be I'd be surprised to find out how many. Uh, I'm sure there's a number of stories on the 75th anniversary podcast that come out purely because we have this alien symbiote line. Yeah, well, story number 27 was Maximum Carnage. That's the first one that jumps to mind. Exactly. Without without this, we don't have Maximum Carnage at all because we don't have Carnage. Right. And that lays a lot of the groundwork for the Clone Saga. And Venom is a part of the Clone Saga in his period where he's trying to be a hero. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, this this has a lot of impact on the industry in terms of continuity. In terms of enjoyment, I suspect a lot of the people who were voting for it to drive it this far up on the rankings into slot number 11 remember it and really enjoy it this well because they were in that age 5 to 7 target market. Right? These are the guys who read it going, man, I want those toys. Mommy, Daddy, buy me these toys. When it was first coming out. Well, I think there's also a good deal of pure fun elements in this. Like I know with my uh, other Twitter group, Drunk Pete, where we reread Spider-Man comics while having a drink on Saturday nights. 
at one point we read issue number three because in that issue, Spider-Man goes, finds the X-Men kind of plotting to leave on their own, goes, oh, I have to tell them. And they say, well, we can't let him tell them. We have to stop him. And it's Spider-Man versus the X-Men. And he trounces them. He beats up all of the X-Men. The only reason he doesn't get anywhere, because at the very end, as he's leaving, he's about to tell Cap what's going on. Professor Xavier wipes his mind. Yeah. So there's nice and fun moments like that where it's like, hey, look, Spidey can beat up the X-Men. Hey, look, She-Hulk can't beat up these people. You know, it's that kind of thing. Yeah, it does have those fun moments. I just don't know that without the nostalgia of childhood, that those <laughs> moments would have been enough to push it ahead of the first issue of the Avengers, the first issue of Fantastic Four, the first Hulk, Captain America Comics number one. Yeah, I could, I can see it being on the top 75 countdown. I'm not sure it needs to be at this high of a place on the countdown. Yeah, and that's where I'm at too. That's what I was trying to get across. Mm-hmm. I mean, in terms of the continuity, which is one of the three, the three criteria that usually land things on here, right? There's the entertainment mm-hmm. and enjoyment. There's the importance to continuity. And there's the messages and morals. The importance to continuity is undeniable. As right. we said, there's a lot that we can point to that said, without Secret Wars, we don't have this or this or this or this or this. So there's no question about that. And again, in the impact on the industry, this was the first truly successful crossover event at Marvel. Mm-hmm. It definitely has its place. I just don't know if its place is at number 11 as opposed to, say, number 41. Agreed. So did you have any closing thoughts on this one? Not really. It's also one very fun thing to do with this, though, is uh, the ori- this is the original Secret Wars. And as they're redoing, I don't want to say redoing because it's not a retelling of the story or anything, but their new Secret Wars, the Jonathan Hickman Secret Wars that's coming out currently, they've had a mini series of Deadpool's Secret Secret Wars, where instead of doing anything to- having to do with Jonathan Hickman, they wrote Deadpool into the original Secret Wars storyline as if he'd been there the entire time. So, for example, the scene we were talking about earlier where the Hulk is holding up a mountain and Reed Richards says things to make him mad so that he can hold it up. In Deadpool's secret, secret wars, Reed Richards turns around to Deadpool and says, you're the most annoying one here. Keep him angry. And it becomes Deadpool's job to go and taunt the Hulk to keep him angry enough to hold up this mountain range. At the same time, at the very end, when all of the heroes have a moment of possible wish fulfillment because there's... Once the Beyonder leaves, there's so much of his energy left behind that they can all get a wish a wish granted, which is how Captain America gets his shield replaced. Deadpool turns around and wishes that nobody would remember he was there. So according to continuity, Deadpool, according to this new continuity, I should say, Deadpool was there and just nobody remembered it. Okay. It's a very fun little addition. Yeah, sounds like it's worth checking out. Mm -hmm. So Lex, thanks for joining us again. Thanks for having me again. It's always a pleasure. Oh, yeah, and we will be hearing from Lex again in the not-too-distant future, because, well, the entire podcast remaining is in the not-too-distant future. We're down to the final ten stories. And specifically, for those of you reading along at home, number ten is Amazing Fantasy 15. Now, that has four stories in it. The lead story is the introduction of Spider-Man. That one, at least, has been reprinted in many places. There's a couple places that reprint all the stories, but not too many. But you can find at least the Spider-Man reprinted in Marvel Tales Annual Number 1, Marvel Tales Starring Spider-Man Number 137, Amazing Spider-Man 275, Marvel Masterworks Volume 1, Amazing Spider-Man Volume 1, Marvel Milestone Edition, Amazing Fantasy 15, Amazing Spider-Man Masterworks, Spider-Man Classics Number 1, The Very Best of Spider-Man, Essential Spider-Man Volume 1, Origins of Marvel Comics, 100 Greatest Marvels of All Time Number 10, Ultimate Spider-Man Volume 1, Marvel Visionaries Stan Lee, The Amazing Spider-Man Omnibus, 
The Amazing Fantasy Omnibus, which does include all the stories because it's all 15 issues of Amazing Fantasy, including the ones titled Amazing Adult Fantasy and Amazing Adventures. Spider-Man Magazine number one. The Git Corp DVD and CD-ROM collections, which also include the entire issue because they're PDF scans, Comixology, and Marvel Digital Unlimited. I haven't read the Comixology edition, but the Marvel Digital Unlimited version also includes the Bell Ringer and the other stories involved. So if you'd like to read along at home, we will be discussing all four stories with emphasis on the origin of Spider-Man next week. And you've got a couple of places you can track it down, should you be so inclined. It is probably one of the most reprinted stories out there, because very few people have it in their budgets to buy the original. So you can rate this and any other podcast you listen to on iTunes or on Stitcher. It does help them get noticed. Now, one of those podcasts should be Lex's other podcast. Lex, do you want to take a few minutes and just tell them about that one? Yes, I'm also a uh, one of three co-hosts of More Than Bits. It's a podcast about us geeks who are now parents, and different ways to raise your kids and other ways you can take technology and whatever other geeky pursuits and either pass it on to your kids or just use that to help you uh, do a better job as a parent. You can find us as part of the Geeked FM network. That's Geeked, G-E-E-K-E-D dot F-M. All right. And finally, thank you for listening. Comic books aren't for kids anymore. We've heard the refrain for years in mainstream media, but 30 seconds at the end of a newscast or two paragraphs in a magazine can't provide the -the behind-the-scenes information or entertainment like one episode of Word Balloon. Welcome to Word Balloon, the comic book conversation show. This is John Suntress. Word Balloon is a one-on-one interview program featuring pop culture conversations with storytellers. People who don't read today's comic books may think the medium is still being written for nine-year-olds, but as film, television, and video game producers can tell you, they couldn't be more wrong. These writers and artists are just as entertaining talking about their process as they are producing the stories they make. Listen to a sample episode and discover why Word Balloon leads the way in pop culture entertainment coverage.